Okay, this morning I want to talk with you, you can see on your outline, about myths about God. And we're in this series on myths that lead to misbelief. You know, there are things that happen in your life, and what you believe about those things often determines whether you become a better person or a bitter person. There are things that happen in your life, and what you believe about those things often determines whether you become better or whether you become bitter. And I can tell you, after four decades of ministry, I've seen a lot of people that let the things that happen to them shape their belief about God and consequently turn them bitter because they believe the wrong things about God. Because if you believe the wrong things, you experience the wrong results, right? And that's why this series that we're in is so important, myths that lead to misbelief. And what we're doing in this series is we're exploring, or you might say we're exploding some of the myths that our age has adopted as truth. This past August, the Barner Research um, Group, which is considered the leading polling group for at least Christian organizations in the world, they did a, a, a survey and they entitled it uh, American Worldview Inventory. And listen to some of the things that, that they discovered. They, they revealed from this inventory that professing Christians, listen to this, are developing more and more decidedly unchristian beliefs and worldviews, and that includes their understanding of God. Do you get that? We, we expect those who may not know Christ to have some aberrant kind of worldviews, but this said more and more those who confess Christ and those who are followers of Christ are adopting more and more unchristian beliefs and worldviews including how they view God. A further study uh, found that 10% believe that God represents just a higher state of consciousness, just in your mind. Uh, 7% believe God is a total realization of personal potential. In other words, that God is nothing more than whatever you can uh, maximize in terms of your uh, potential. 15% say that God is no longer involved in their lives. There may be a reason for that. 2% believe that everyone is God. We're all just God. And 82% of confessing Christians believe this statement. God helps those who, do you know how to finish it? And they believe that that's actually a scripture verse in the Bible. Well, it is. It's in the book of 2 Hezekiah. <laughs> Some of you say, where is that? I can't find 2 Hezekiah. That's right. You can't find it. All right. But to me, perhaps the most concerning uh, revelation from Barna's research is this, and I quote, tens of millions of Americans consider themselves to be Christians, but do not believe that God is really in control or cares what happens to them. Tens of millions, this is just this past August when they released this survey, tens of millions of Americans who say, I, I am a Christian and I am a follower of Christ, but I don't believe God is in control of anything and I don't believe God cares about me. So today I want to look at some myths about God. Why is that important? Because what you believe about God affects the way you see yourself. Do you get that? You say, how is that? Well, you know, the Bible says that you and I are created in the image of God. So if we have a faulty image of God, guess what follows? We have a distorted or dysfunctional image of ourself. 
If you're physically able to do so, stand with me as we read our text this morning, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is what the scripture says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he, that is the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say, remember that, that's important. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst, or that is the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's go on to verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, uh, of its fruit, and, and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Father, uh, would you speak to us this morning from your word? Uh, And Father, would you help us see the truth as opposed to the commonly accepted myths about who you are? We want to know who you are, God, so that we will know who we are in relation to you. Thank you for your word to help us, to coach us, to counsel us, correct us, to convict us. Uh, God, it is holy. It is infallible. And we ask that you speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you can be seated. Now, this is the account of how everything in this world got turned upside down. Those first five verses, really six verses if you want, this is the account of how it all went south, how it all got turned upside down. And it is also the account of how man's fellowship with God got broken. It is the account of the strategy that Satan employed uh, to do that. And notice, if you will, in verse 1, it says that the serpent or Satan was more crafty than any other beast of, of the field. In fact, Jesus describes the devil this way in John chapter 8, verse 44. Listen, it says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he, he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan, you see, doesn't just lie to us in order to mislead us. Satan lies to us in order to destroy us. Now, now, now remember, he doesn't just lie to us to mislead us. That's one thing. But he's got an agenda that's far more nefarious. His agenda is he wants to destroy you. Uh, How do we know that? Well, Jesus said about him in John chapter 10, the thief... Satan comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. Look, he's not just a bully. He's out to destroy you. He's out to to take you out. And he will do that through myths about God, which you and I believe. He is the original liar. And he is still the best at it. Jesus called him the father of lies in that passage I just read to you. He calls him the father of lies. There's nobody better at it than uh, than he is, and he still is. And what he does is he takes a little bit of truth, just a little bit of truth, so that it sounds good to our ears. 
He takes a little bit of truth, but he takes a lot of lie. And he wraps the lie in the little bit of truth. And, we, and he causes us to say, well, that sounds right. It seems right. But it is a poison kind of lie. It is a poison fruit. And it destroys us. I like what Dr. Adrian Rogers said many years ago. He said, Satan would, now listen to this. This is good. He said, Satan would rather you think a wrong thing and believe a lie rather than do a wrong thing. Did you get that? Satan would rather you think a wrong thing and believe a lie rather than do a wrong thing. Now, hang on. He goes on to say, why is that? It is because the thought is the father of action. And it is more dangerous to believe a wrong thing than to do a wrong thing because you can do the wrong thing by mistake, but the next thing you can correct it, right? The next time you can correct it. But watch this. If you believe a wrong thing, if you believe it, you know what you'll do? You'll just keep doing the wrong thing over and over and over again because you believe the wrong thing. You see, the best lies sound the most like truth. The best lies sound the most like truth. And remember, he is the father of lies. Satan is, and he is really good at putting together really good lies that sound like truth. And those lies that are nearest to the truth are the most dangerous to your soul. So Satan doesn't mind if you believe little lies, of course. He wants you to believe all lies. But you know what he's really out to do? He's out to get you to believe lies about the biggest subject of all, God. A.W. Tozer, a great preacher of years gone by, and he, he's written some prolific books, and we studied one a couple years ago in our January book study called The Pursuit of God. Fantastic book. If you haven't read it, you ought to read that book. You would think you would read, were reading, he wrote it back in the 40s, and you would think you were, it was written today, The Pursuit of God. But Tozer said this, he said, no religion, listen, this is good, no religion can rise higher than its concept of God. No religion can rise higher than its concept of God. That's so true, isn't it? And that's why we have to recognize the truth about God or we will be victims like uh, Adam and Eve were because we'll believe lies or myths about God. And so in our passage, we see the master liar, Satan himself, and we see his tactic and what he did was he attacked the character of God. He's still doing that. He attacked the character of God by propagating lies about God. And I want to show you four of his lies this morning, or myths if you want to call them that. Four lies about God. Number one, God is unreliable. Lie number one, myth number one, God is unreliable. And you know how he begins that? He creates doubt. In verse 1, he says, look at this. He said to the woman, did God actually say, just underline that or something. And note that. Did God really say, what is he doing? He is saying, do you really trust God, what God said? He's, he is suggesting that God is completely unreliable. So he questions the reliability of what God has said. He's not saying, did God really say that? Repeat that to me. What he's saying is, you mean to tell me that that's what God said? That's how it really, that's how we would phrase it. Are you kidding me? Is that what God said? That's what's going on here. And so the devil to, to the woman, he, he introduces doubt of the word of God. He creates this doubt about the veracity of God's word. Now, uh, you remember when we started this series, 
Uh, I told you that the first few messages were foundational to the whole series. And the first thing we talked about was the foundation. You remember I preached on the, the two foundations, the one house built on sand, one house built on rock. Okay, we started there. And then we moved to the, to the second uh, uh, idea, and that is the veracity of Scripture, right? The Scripture, is it God's Word or isn't it? Because you've got to have those things right. You have to have the foundation right. Jesus Christ's foundation. We build upon the foundation with the truth of God. That's the Word of God. And then we talked about origins. How did we get here? Was that on purpose? Was it accident? All that sort of stuff. Those three things are, are uh, uh, significant in the process. But then you would add to that your belief about God, right? What you believe uh, about God. And so what the devil does is he calls into question the reliability of God. Is God really trustworthy? Now, that's important because if you begin to doubt the trustworthiness of God and what God has said, it will eventually be devastating to your soul. It's just a matter of time. Well, it will be devastating because if you don't trust God, then you won't trust what God has said. And consequently, down the road, sooner or later, you'll just say, well, I'm just kind of, I don't know what to trust. I don't know what to believe. But how does the devil create doubt? I want to tell you two ways that the devil creates doubt. You can jot these down. The first is that he creates doubt in your mind. He calls into your uh, mind, he calls into question the word of God. Hey, did God really say that? He gets you thinking, of it. did God really say that? Or what did God mean when he said that? By the way, God never misquotes himself. He, he never says something and then says, oh, I'm trying, I didn't say that right. No, let me see if I, now you and I do that, right? We'll say something, say, ah, that didn't come out the way I meant it. God never has that problem. God has never said, well, that didn't really come out right. But that's what the devil said. And he gets your mind to start thinking, Did, you know, can you really trust what God says? A recent poll, again, by the Barna organization revealed, listen to this, that only 49% of Christian millennials, we have a lot of millennials in this service, but on, this survey said only 49% of those who uh, are Christian, Christian millennials believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it has no errors. Only 49%, you say, oh, that, is that a lot? No, that's really not a lot uh, for confessing Christians to say, I believe that this book, this word is from God, it is alive, and it is without error. The survey went on to say about, uh, about one-third of self-defined uh, Christians say this, that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon all contain uh, the same kind of truth. They're just all good holy books. But folks, it's just not true. As we, you know, we go back to the, some of the previous things we talked about. Y'all know the name of Billy Graham. And by the mid-20th century, Billy Graham was being very successful as an evangelist for the, an organization called Youth for Christ. And it, he was traveling all over the world at that time. He wasn't known like he is known now. He wasn't doing the big crusades that he did. But he was having an impact on students all over the world through Youth for Christ. Uh, at the mid part of the 20th century. And he was accommodated by a friend of his and really his mentor, a guy named Charles Templeton. And God used them in the, all over the globe. But uh, interestingly, Charles Templeton uh, 
became an agnostic and he separated himself. He went off to Princeton University and he began to take theology courses. And while he was there, they taught him that you can't trust the Bible. You can't trust the, the word of God. And it caused him, it shook him so bad that he just left Christianity altogether and this ministry that he had worldwide. And he, because he was a, a mentor and friend of Billy Graham, he tried to persuade Billy Graham. He said, you need, to, you need to rethink what you've been talking about, about the Bible and trusting the Bible and all of this. And Billy Graham at the time was also the president, the youngest college president uh, ever of a Christian uh, university, Northwestern, in, um, uh, up in uh, Minnesota. And so uh, Charles Templeton said to him, here's what you need to do. You've got to go to school and you've got to get an advanced degree so that you can serve in the role, continue to serve in the role of president, and you can move that university or that college to accreditation. And so Graham began to struggle, and he had this turmoil going on inside of him. Well, maybe he's right. Maybe my friend, my mentor is right that, that I can't really trust the Bible and that sort of thing. Maybe I need to take off and go to school like he did and all of this sort of stuff. So he's really struggling. You can imagine the internal struggle. And here's uh, about that time, here's what happened. Uh, he was asked to come out to a, a, a conference center in California called uh, Forest Home. And he went to Forest Home there where he was going to be one of the speakers for this conference for a few days. And while he was there, he was struggling with this stuff I'm, I'm telling you about. And so, so he finally decides that what he will do one night is he, he, he kind of walks off into the wooded area around the encampment. And he puts his Bible, he lays his Bible down on a stump. And he's praying to God and he says, Father, I'm going to, I, I don't know what I can believe or, or not. I know what my friend is telling me. And, but he noticed that he had been reading all week and he kept seeing this statement, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And, and so he's praying and he just simply says to God, God, there are things in this book I don't understand. I can't answer some of the philosophical and the psychological questions that, that my friend Chuck and others are raising. And then he fell on his knees. And he said, Father, I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I, I'm going to allow faith to go beyond my intellect and beyond my questions and doubts. I choose to believe that this is your inspired word. And in his autobiography, Billy Graham says that after that prayer, he stood up and he felt the power and the presence of God in ways that he had not experienced in months. And the next day he preached and 400 people came to know Christ. And within weeks, he was invited to hold this great crusade in Los Angeles that launched his ministry across the world as we knew it. In 1949, the California crusade, the tent crusade, went on for weeks and weeks and weeks, and people were getting saved. I mean, multitudes of people were getting saved. That all happened, Graham says, after he said, God, I will accept your word. I will, I will believe it to be true. Now listen, Satan knows that if he can get you to doubt God's word, if he can get you to doubt what God has said, then there are two things that are going to happen. We saw in, in verse 6, we saw one of them, disobedience is going to happen. Because this is our guidebook, isn't it? It's our owner's manual. It tells us, you know, the boundaries and all of those things. And so if the devil can get us to doubt just exactly what he did with, with Adam and Eve, he, got, he put doubt in her mind, and guess what? It led, look, verse 6, look, it led to disobedience. She did what God had told her not to do. 
So if the devil can get you to doubt God's word, what God has said, then he can lead you to disobedience, right? The second thing, if he can get you to disobey God, God, what God has said, is he can lead you to death. Look at verse 3. God said, if we do, and, and you know what happened? When they did that, you know what happened? Death. Exactly what God had said. Physical death and spiritual death were the results of their doubting what God had said. And so, so he will mess with your mind to try to get you to doubt so he can lead you to disobedience and to spiritual and even physical death in some cases. But there's a second thing that it'll do. Not only will he create doubt in your mind, he will manipulate your emotions. This is how he uses a doubt, to manipulate your emotions. The devil attempts to get you to live by your feelings instead of your faith. Now, I'm all for feelings. I've said it for years. I am for feelings. I like feelings. Life would be really dull if we didn't have feelings. Amen? And God designed us to have feelings. But he didn't design us to live by our feelings. He designed us to live by faith. And see, what happens, the devil knows that he can stir our feelings. He did that with Adam and Eve. And he stirred, not only did he cause her to doubt what God had said, he caused her to believe that, that God was holding out. He stirred, he played with her emotions, her feelings. And you know what the devil still does that? He wants you to live by your feelings. Feelings are wonderful. But see, here's why you don't live by your feelings. You don't live by your feelings because one day your feelings are up and one day they're down, right? And so if you put your trust in how you feel spiritually, one day you may feel great and the next day you may feel horrible. And the devil knows that if he can get you to go back and forth like this, you feel like a spiritual yo-yo. You won't know where you are with the Lord. And so he tries to do that. He tries to create that kind of doubt by manipulating our feelings and manipulating our thoughts and our, our mind. So the myth or the lie is that God can't be trusted. And you'll just have to use your own judgment. But nothing's farther from the truth. God is completely reliable. And when he speaks, it's always for our good and for our, our uh, protection. When a parent tells a child, just trust me. You know, when I was young and I heard that, I used to think, I am never going to use that line with my kids. Not. I thought I wouldn't, but I, do, I did. You know, my daughter, just trust me. And I used to add a little something <laughs> uh, to Karis, our daughter, who, by the way, is great with child. I've told Chuck to have a sermon in his pocket because the baby is moving down and it's supposed to be two or three weeks out, but I think the baby is changing its mind, wants to enter the world, and is uh, uh, doing that. So, and by the way, hello to my grandson, Bodie, who is watching. And um, so, I, you know, I never know, uh, but we're ready. At any rate, I used to tell our daughter this. I, I would say, you're going to have to trust me on this. And she would say, why? And I added this, parents... I, if your children don't listen to this, um, parents, this is the line I would add. And I would say, because I'm smarter than you are. No, you, your parents really are smarter than you. 
Right now, it may not always stay that way, but right now, they're smarter than you. And that's what I would say, because I'm smarter than you. And then I would shock her and I would say, you know what? Your mother is too. Oh, Dad. But just trust me. So you've used that line. You've heard that line. Just trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. You know what a parent is really saying when they're doing that? They're saying, I love you more than I can explain. And what I'm trying to do is get you to align your life with what's right and with the right things because I know what's best. Now, let me just tell you, when God speaks, it is always right. And he's always trustworthy and reliable. So never fall for the lie that God can't be trusted, that God doesn't know what's going on. Here's the second myth or lie about God. Not only is God unreliable, but God is unfair. In verses 1 to 3, again, he says, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. You've heard somebody say, maybe you've said it before, have you ever, that's just not fair. Something has happened, and they just say, that's not fair. I once heard about a missionary couple. They spent their life. They were retired. They were elderly. They'd spent their life on the mission field uh, helping people know who Christ was, and it came time for their, them to retire, and it was in the era where you crossed the ocean by uh, a ships, and they came back across the ocean by a ship, and, and on the boat, people were partying and carrying on, and, and, um, and they, they, they came uh, back to the mainland, Uh, the gangplank dropped down and as they walked out of the ship, this missionary couple noticed that there was a big band playing and there was a celebration and balloons and all this sort of stuff. And the wife said, wow, they, they, they brought this band to welcome us back to, you know, to the U S and, but she was quickly disabused of that when she discovered that the band that was playing was for all those people that had been partying on the boat. And she turned to her husband and she said, and I thought somebody would be there to greet us because of the work that we've done for the kingdom. And she said, it just seems so unfair that the people that were on the boat who had the least amount of interest in the things of God get this welcome reception. And she said, it's just not fair. You know what her husband said? He looked back and he said, honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. I, wanna, I just want to tell you, sometimes in this world, the devil says it's unfair what's going on in your life. It's unfair, the circumstances, whatever it is you may be facing. But I want to tell you something. That's a lie from hell. You're not home yet. God's not finished yet. And the subtle lie that Satan wants you to believe, he wanted them to believe, was that God was unfair. Even though, think about it, God said, think about this, God said to them of this whole garden, you can eat from 99.9% of the fruit of this garden. 99.9%. You can eat of that. That's that's free. There's only one little bit, one fraction that you can't eat of. And you know what the devil tries to convince them of? God's not fair. 
in spite of the 99%, he won't let you eat that. God is not fair. The devil still uses this myth. To, uh, and people say, well, God is not fair. Have you ever noticed anytime something difficult goes on in our lives or in the world, there are a lot of folks who jump to the immediate conclusion that God is being unfair because he could have intervened. I read some comments. This is almost a year ago as it related to COVID when it was moving about. And people were commenting about God. And you can't imagine some of the vile things they were saying about God. They were cussing God, and they were using language that we would never use in this building. They were giving him names that I would never repeat. And I thought, God, how do you do it? How do you not, how do you, how are you so patient? And then I thought about what Peter said. God is not slow concerning his, his promise, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I thought, God, how do you do that when people are saying the vilest things about you? Because COVID is here, you sh if God is God, he should have intervened. He should have stopped this. And on and on it goes. Many jump to the conclusion that God is just being unfair because he could do something. But let me just say to you today, the idea of fairness often doesn't factor in several things. Number one, it doesn't factor in that God may be testing our faith. Sometimes, you know, when it just seems like God's not fair, it might be more about God testing our faith. It's not about fairness then, it's about faithfulness. You remember the Bible says that God tested Abraham? Sometimes God may be testing us. That, it may not have anything to do with fairness, it's about faithfulness. And sometimes we need to factor in that God may be correcting our course. He's trying to move us back to the path or the way of righteousness. And so sometimes we say, well, God's not being fair, but what God may be doing is correcting our course. Or we, we need to factor in that God may be disciplining and rebelling us uh, and, uh, for some acts of disobedience. The Bible says whom the Father loves, he, he disciplines, and he does this to restore fellowship. And we sometimes perceive that as God's not fair. Or, or, or maybe God is just allowing, listen to this, a broken world to operate like the broken world it is. Sometimes what we call unfairness is really God saying, I'm, I, look, anytime I intervene, that's a, a, a miraculous response. Anytime, but when I just, I, sometimes I just let the world operate the, in a, its broken way because it's under, by his allowance, it is under the prince and the power of this world. You see, the devil convinced Adam and Eve that God was holding back on them, that he wasn't being fair by not giving them access to everything. He'll do that with you as well. You know how he does it with you and me? He does it by getting us to look at what we don't have instead of what we do have. So they're looking at the garden. Are you, are you with? They're looking at the garden. God says, everything. you can have everything but this one tree. You can't, you can't eat of that tree. And you know what? What, is the, what does the devil convince them to look at? Instead of looking at all that they had, and by the way, Eve started there. She said, well, he said we could eat of all the trees. And the devil said, yeah, but this is one tree. And he makes the one thing they didn't have the most appealing thing. They knew nothing about the tree. They just knew God said, don't eat of this tree because there are bad consequences that come with this tree. By the way, I've been asked for years, so why, did, why that tree anyway? 
I don't know this to be fact, but I'll tell you why I believe it was. I believe God put the one tree in the garden, said you can eat of all the other fruit uh, that you want in the garden, just not that tree. Why is that? I believe as much as anything, God, that tree represented man's freedom to choose to obey God or disobey. By that tree being there and God saying you can't eat of that tree, it, it put man in the posture to have free freedom to choose whether they would follow God wholeheartedly or rebel. And think about this. So uh, all that, but what does the devil do? He says, God's being unfair. And he's being unfair because uh, he won't let you eat that tree. The devil wants to get you to look at what you don't have instead of what you do have. And by the way, you say, well, I don't have much. I'm not talking about just material things. I'm talking about what you have. You got up this morning. You know, you're breathing right now. Some of you are, most of you are. I mean, think of what you have. And the devil says, yeah, but think of what you don't have. Think of what you don't have. He tries to get us looking at what we don't have instead of what we do have. And by the way, if you know Jesus Christ, you have the greatest thing you could ever have. If you have nothing else in this life, you have an eternity in heaven with Jesus Christ. Listen, that itself should be enough to cause us to get up every day and say, one day this world, this broken world will be done and all will be well. Tell you a second thing he does to make you think God is unfair. Not only does he get you looking at what you don't have, he gets you to compare your life and your circumstances with other people's lives and their circumstances. So what he'll do is say, well, look at them. They're, they're, they haven't had to go through what I've gone through. They haven't had to deal with, they haven't had the kind of circumstances I've had. On and on it goes. And he gets us to start comparing ourselves with other people. That's just not a good thing to do. In fact, Paul said in, in the book of Corinthians, he said, they that compare themselves among each other are not wise. In other words, that was a kind way of saying people that compare themselves with others are fools. And the devil will say, well, look at them. They're not having to go through what you're going through. Look at them. Why does everything seem to work in their favor? But it never works in my favor. Look at them, the challenges they have. Look, all of these things. And the devil will get you looking at everybody else when God wants you not to even look at yourself. He wants you to look at him. Keeping our eyes fixed upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12. And yet the devil says, I've got to distort your view. I, I've, got to, I've, got to, I've got to mess with your perception of things. A woman was sitting in the airport waiting to catch her plane, and she had gone into a convenience, one of those little stores, you know, the little bookstore things in the airport that have the magazines and snacks on. She would picked up a, a, bag, a little bag of cookies. She went back out and sat down in the gate area, and there was a man sitting, well, this was before COVID. He was sitting just one, there was a chair in between the two of them. He was reading a newspaper. And so uh, she began to eat the cookies in the seat next, next and she was eating a cookie. And uh, then she happened to notice he'd put his paper down every once in a while and he'd pick up a cookie too and eat it. And this went back and forth, back and forth until finally, finally, um, there was one cookie left. <laughs> And can you believe the audacity of this guy to put his paper down and he broke it in two and slid half of it to her and he ate the other half. And she just was irate, but she wasn't going to say anything, but she thought, I've never been treated like this in my life. They called finally for the, gate, uh, for the, the passenger support. She picked her purse up and had to look down her purse and saw her bag of cookies. 
he wasn't eating her cookies. She'd been eating his cookies the whole time. Perception. You know what the devil wants to do? He wants to warp your perception. He wants you to see things in a completely dysfunctional, distorted way. And so he'll get you to compare yourself with other people. Other people. Why? All to mess with how you see the world. Well, so the devil wants you to believe God is unreliable and that God is unfair. But there's a, a third lie that he wants you to believe, and that is that God is unforgiving. Verses 3 and 4, you will die, God said. And the devil counterpoints that and says, no, you're, you're not going to die. Is that what God's telling you? The, the devil is actually arguing that we do not need to depend on God, nor do we need his forgiveness, that he is unforgiving. In fact, what his, the devil's counterpoint is that, that, that he wants to make God appear to us, as he did them, as this, this heavenly bully, someone who's harsh and unloving and unforgiving and intimidating and self-serving, but completely unnecessary. That's what he wants us to believe, and that's what he wants. He says, God really, you're not going to die. God's a bully. Now, God had clearly indicated to Adam and Eve that they would die, and indeed, they did die. They would die physically, and they died spiritually. Their soul became separate from God. They had been walking in fellowship, but their soul now was, was separated from God, and physically, they would eventually die. But now, listen to this. When you read that story, there's one thing that you never read because it's not in here. There's never a statement by God that if you eat from that tree, I will forsake you forever or I will refuse to redeem you. You never see that. God said, you will die. You'll die physically, you'll die spiritually. But he didn't say, and I will not redeem you. I will forsake you. In fact, God and Adam have a conversation after this happens. And God kills an animal to cover their sin. God never said, yeah, he said, you're going to die. But he didn't say, I won't redeem you. Now, let me tell you something. God already had a redemptive plan for forgiveness and restoration. He already had that. Some people think, oh no, that when, when, when man chose to rebel against God and it was his choice, and when he chose to do that, God had this heavenly counsel between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They got their heads together and huddled and said, what are we going to do? We didn't see this coming. Didn't happen. The redemptive plan of God was already in place. So God wasn't taken by surprise by man's choice to rebel because he already had a, a redemptive plan. The myth of God's unforgiveness is often, by the way, believed by people who say, well, God just can't forgive me. He can't forgive me because of what I've done. I've heard people say that. I talked to a man in in jail some years ago and I talked to him about the Lord and he said I need that so much but he said I got to get straightened out the stuff I've done so Christ will accept me and I pleaded with him it doesn't work that way you can't get yourself straightened out enough for God to accept you and that's why Jesus died for you so that you can't try to to earn God's favor but you can just receive it he never I couldn't convince him of that there are a lot of people who live by saying well God can't forgive me God can't forgive me. And sometimes it's because they can't forgive themselves. Now listen, if that were true, God couldn't forgive you. The, 
if that were the case, there'd be no hope for any of us. And if we believe this lie that God is unforgiving, I want to tell you something. It is devastating for our soul. It's satisfying for Satan, but it is devastating for our soul. But thank God, it's a myth. Daniel 9.9, listen to this. Write this down. This is a great verse, Daniel 9.9. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving even though we have rebelled against him. Listen, listen, redemption and forgiveness is not based on what you've done. It is based on what God has done for you. For God so loved the world. That's what redemption is based on. And by the way, you can go, did you know, you can study this book from Genesis to Revelation. You know what is here? They call it a scarlet thread through the Bible. It is the thread of redemption all the way through the Bible. So don't believe the devil's lies that say say that God's unreliable and God's unfair. And by the way, you don't want God to be fair. Hello? When somebody, you hear somebody out there say, this is why I don't follow God. God is unfair. Say, thank goodness. You're right. God is unfair. And and that's what we want. We, We don't want God to be fair. If God ever is fair with us, we're in trouble. Hello? What do we want, class? Mercy. We want grace, but not fairness. (laughs) Don't ever ask God to be fair because he might take you up on it. All right. That's what you want. Fairness. We don't want fairness. We want grace. We want mercy. That's why Jesus came into the world so that we could have redemption and restoration, not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. So don't believe the lies of the devil that say God's unreliable or God's unfair or God's unforgiving. But there's one last one, one last lie. And that is we sometimes hear God is unreasonable. And that's the idea, uh, uh, the lie that uh, the devil is trying to propagate in verse five when he says, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, you're going to be like him. So God is just being unreasonable. God is just holding out on you. God had given them the greatest freedom uh, in the garden. He only put one, stipula- one stipulation upon them. But that one stipulation was used by the devil to create this discord between now, Adam and Eve and God. How many of you in this place today are parents? Okay. We've got a lot of parents in here. Um, have you ever said something like this to your child? Okay, if you're going to ride your bike, you're going to put your helmet on. You've got to put your helmet on. If you're going to ride your bike, you got to put your, put, put your helmet on uh, because it's for your own protection. You, if you've got little ones and they ride, you probably have said that, okay? Maybe you've got teenagers and, and they're at a stage where uh, they're, they're going to they're gonna go out with their friends. And you say something like this to them, okay, I want you to go out and I want you to have a, a, a great time, but you've got to be home by 11, And inevitably, if you've had students and you've put any kind of curfew on them, you've heard them say, it's just not right. You you never let me have any fun. (laughs) Have you heard that line? Have you heard them say that that they can't have any fun? But you didn't say that. You didn't say they couldn't have any fun. You, 
you, you didn't say that you'd put the whole world off limits. You just said, no, here's one stipulation. I, I don't want you doing this one thing. And they say that's completely unreasonable and you shouldn't put those kind of limitations on me. What they're really saying is that you're a killjoy or you're just too strict. Uh, they're saying I shouldn't have to listen to you because there should be no restrictions on my life. But you're doing that. When you put that restriction on them, what are you doing? You're doing that because you love them, right? All your parents can thank me later. But you're doing that because you love them. You're, you're doing that because you're trying to protect them. We say, yeah. Parents say that, yeah, yeah. And if you're not there as a parent yet, just hang on. And we say, that's right. When I do that, when I put a restriction, I'm doing it out of love. I'm doing it to protect them. I'm doing it because I care for them more than anything in the world. So that's right. Now be careful. Because did you know that we react the same way to God oftentimes? We get it if we're a parent and we have the children, but we forget that sometimes God is saying, I put this restriction in your life because I love you. I put this boundary in your life because I love you. I put this demand on you because I love you. And we go, but Lord, I ought to be able to make up my own mind. I ought to be able to, to follow whatever my own limitations are. That's what we do. I should have no limitations. You're not treating me reasonably. It's so unreasonable. The fact is, God is not being unreasonable at all. He's just treating us like a loving father does. But the lie of the devil is to suggest that God's way and God's rules are unreasonable. And he wants you to believe that God is just a selfish God up there, self serving himself. And the devil wants you to believe that God doesn't know what he's doing. And that's why sometimes when you, you say, I don't understand what, God must not know what he's doing. That's why sometimes we have trouble obeying God because we think, well, how can I be sure God, is really, God really knows what he's doing? And you know what the devil will do? He will use that myth to create greater confusion in your life. Like things like this, that, uh, he'll, he'll try to cause you to believe that God's rules are too restrictive on you. And, and I should be set free to do my own thing. Restrictions are not evil. They're loving. They actually give us freedom within the boundaries of God, and God knows how to set the boundaries. You know, sheep have pins. You know why? Because, and the Bible refers to the people of God as sheep frequently. Sheep aren't the smartest animal on the planet. And I don't mean to insult your intelligence, but we're just not the smartest people in the universe God is and so God says because you're not as smart as you think you are I put these boundaries around you in fact even David said in Psalm 16 the boundaries of God have fallen to me in pleasant places he recognized God had put these boundaries around, and they were for his good and he said you know when I look at where God is but I've got freedom within these boundaries that God has created for me and that's a good thing because sheep need pens they need boundaries 
And God's a loving shepherd who puts those boundaries into our life. Now, you know, most sheep don't mind boundaries, but you do have some that are a little sheepier than other sheep. And they'll try to slip away, but a lot of times it's out of, you know, kind of an ignorance. They'll, do you know a sheep will actually put its head down and, and eat its way over a cliff? Did y'all know that? Now you understand why God calls us sheep. Because we can do the same thing, right? Maybe not even maliciously. So God has these boundaries, and they're loving boundaries. I'll tell you what else, though, will happen if the devil can convince us. He'll also convince us that God's rules are too demanding. I can't please God. So why should I even try? God's standards are just too high for me. The truth is God's standards are too high for you. That's why he sent Jesus into this world. You can't do it. You can't earn it for it. In fact, Paul writing 2 Corinthians says, For our sake God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God said, I know you can't do it, so I've got a redemptive strategy. The devil will make you think God's rules are too impractical. Like this, and we hear this. They just don't, God's rules just don't work in the modern age, in the modern world. Says who? Usually says those who don't know Christ and or those that don't understand the truth of God. In America, do you know there's only one philosophical school that has arisen in America? You know what it is? It's called pragmatism. And we don't have anything to be proud of with that. When you know pragmatism essentially says, it doesn't matter what's true, it says what works. You know what the devil tried to do and say, well, what works in the age that you're living in? Put aside the truth of what God. And so instead of asking, here's, instead of asking, does it work? Our first question has to be, is it true? And, and, and then the devil will try to convince us that God's rules are too controversial. Many, many people don't like God's rules uh, and, and suggest that they create tensions and conflict with others in, in the age who don't agree with them. Well, sometimes they do. Uh, our goal isn't to pick fights in the culture. Our goal is to, to live out the truth and speak the truth in love. But sometimes it's not going to be received well. Especially in the age you're living in, it's getting harder and harder even to speak the truth in love without being attacked because of your position in Christ. And so many people say, well, the rules are just too controversial. Let me say something I've said for 20 years. You know what Christians need to do? They need to love their culture. You need to be light and salt and in the culture. But listen, you need to stop letting the world tell you how you're supposed to live for God. Stop letting the world say, this is how you are. If you want to make it in the culture, this is how you're supposed to live uh, for God. We need to stop letting people that don't know God tell us how, what it means to live for God. But let me close by asking you a couple of questions. How do you overcome these myths uh, about God? Uh, myths that say he's unreliable, that, that he's unfair, he's unforgiving, he's unreasonable. How do you overcome that? It's very simple. You overcome it by knowing the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, him, and it will set you free. That's how you overcome the myths. I heard a pastor years ago say, the two books that the devil hates the most, you know what they are? The book of Genesis 
and the book of Revelation. You know why? Because in Genesis, his doom is pronounced. It's declared what's going to happen to him. And in Revelation, it tells about how it's carried out. Listen to Revelations 12, 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who, who is called the devil and Satan. And listen to this, the deceiver of the whole world, the liar, the myth maker about God. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And they, meaning the followers of Christ, conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Listen, they weren't captive to politically correct myths about God. They were captive to spiritually correct truths about God. The word of. Billy Graham, when he first came and when he first began preaching, uh, he had a professor at Cornell University that had heard him preach. And after he finished, the professor from Cornell came up to him and said, young man, you're gifted. You're a great speaker. You're very persuasive. But if you want to go places, you're going to have to leave out all that blood stuff. Billy Graham said, I determined after that to preach on the blood of Jesus more than ever. Some years ago, I was invited at the Easter season to, to speak at um, an Easter, um, uh, a community Easter celebration. And those who were heading it up asked me before the meeting if I would make sure not to talk about the blood of Jesus Christ. So you know what I talked about. The blood of Jesus, the redemptive plan that defeated, they overcame by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb. On the cross, you see, the devil was exposed as a fraud, as a liar, and as a deceiver, and it was the blood of Christ that brought victory. If the devil, by the way, the Bible says this, if the devil had have known, in, in Corinthians, Paul writes and says, if the devil had have known, what was, this is a paraphrase, what was going on at the cross, he would have, it says, the powers of darkness would have never crucified the Lord of glory. If it had known. See, that tells you, that's something good. It means the devil doesn't know everything. You people sometimes think the devil knows it. He doesn't know everything. God does. But the devil doesn't. And they, he didn't realize what was going on. That plan that had been set in motion, eternity past, the devil didn't know what was going on. He wouldn't have allowed it if he had known. But he did think when Christ died, he thought, victory. Uh, he didn't know what was coming in the resurrection. And the resurrection was the stamp upon him that you're finished. It's over for you. It's just a matter now of running out the clock. I watched a game. I love this time of year. This is the greatest time of year for old basketball players. March Madness. And I veg out. I do. I love it. Watched a team beat another team by over 50 points. It was over long before the buzzer went off. I mean, long before the buzzer went off, it was over. When they tipped the ball at the second half, when they started the second half, it was already over. You know what? When Jesus came out of the tomb, 
It was over. Satan was conquered. Death was conquered. It's just a matter of running the clock out. But we have the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? We're just waiting for the final buzzer to go off. And that's why he hates Revelation, because Revelation says, here is your future, devil. But it also says to you and I, here's your future. Here's what you can expect. So listen to me. Don't believe those myths about God. He's unreliable. He's unforgiving. You know, he's unreasonable. Uh, don't, don't believe all that stuff. God is so reliable. God is so forgiving that he sent his only son to die for you. And that happened because he shed his blood on the cross. You and I, let's make sure of something. If you don't know Christ today, you need Christ today. And I don't just mean believing up here. I mean, have you trusted him right here? Because what you want to be is a part of that multitude who will overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. What is the word of your testimony? Here it is. Jesus Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's not me in me. It's not even me for God. He who knew no sin became sin for Ray Jones. Mm. <clears throat> that the righteousness of God would be in him. And we overcome because of his righteousness in us. Can you say that I have surrendered my soul to him? Are you still operating by the lies of the enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Wow, thank you. Thank you so much, God, for not giving up on us. Thank you, God, that you had a redemptive plan in mind. And Father, I pray for those who are watching by live stream and television, those in this audience, that they'll not be victimized by the lies of the enemy about who you are, that you don't care, that you're untrustworthy. Oh God, let us know the truth, that you're just the opposite of all those things. You're an ever-present friend in time of trouble. You will never leave us or forsake us. You loved us so much. You came into this world and you are patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you. Father, I pray for those in this room, again, those watching, they've never turned their eternal soul over to you, that right now, God, they would do that and you can with heads bowed and eyes closed, you can call on the name of the Lord to be saved. You just say something like this, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I know I'm a sinner and I know I need you. And this morning, today, I call on you, Father, to come into my life. Forgive me, transform me, reside in me with your Holy Spirit. Give me a home with you in heaven one day in eternity. 
Maybe you're here and you say, you know what, I've allowed some of those lies to creep in. I know Christ, but I've allowed some of the lies to creep in through because of my circumstances or challenges that I've faced. And I just, you just say this to God, God, I'm sorry for believing lies. And I thank you that you saved me. Father, restore to me the joy of my salvation and restore to me the joy of walking in fellowship with you. Lord, hear these prayers. You promised you would. And move in the lives of all of those who've called upon you today. In Jesus' name, amen. How do I know God hears those prayers? Because the Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what John wrote in John chapter 1? He says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So today, if either by live stream or by television or in this audience, this live audience, if you called on Jesus Christ to become not just someone you know about, to become your personal Savior, you entrusted your soul, you prayed that prayer and called on them, I want you to do something. Would you text the word PASTOR, P-A-S-T-O-R, to this number, 334-384-8080. By live stream, you'll see it on your screen. Television, you'll see it on your screen. Text that word, PASTOR. You can do that in this live audience. We'll get it, and we'll take it from there. And I hope you'll let us know. You say, why should I do that? Well, Jesus said this, if, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father. Nothing to be ashamed about if you trusted Christ as your Savior. And so would you text that word, Pastor, to us? We'll take it from there. No strings attached. Don't worry about those things. You may be here and um, are watching and you, you said, well, I want to join Ridgecrest. You can join us by live stream scores and score. I I can't hardly tell you how many people have joined us in the last year, and you can too. Text that word JOIN to that same number, 334-384-8080. And you can do it again, this live audience. And we'll take care of it from there. Now, in this live audience, you have a little bit of an advantage. You can take the tear-off panel on the back of your worship folder and you can check the decision. Maybe you need to be baptized. We'll schedule that. Text the word baptized to us, whatever, and we'll schedule that for you. And you can just take it in this live audience. You can just tear that panel off and you can drop that in the offering basket on your way out. But by all means, obey the voice of God. Whatever he is, whatever decision he has brought in your life today, it's very important that you follow through and follow up on that. Okay, will you do that?